Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Jude, Episode 8. In the last episode, we stressed the point about law versus grace because in this next part of Jude, the Spirit addresses apostasy in the Old Testament. He uses these examples as a poignant warning for us to live by grace and not fall prey to perversions of grace. Jude 5-7 through Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that Jesus, the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. We now come to three groups of triads, the fifth, sixth, and the seventh triad. The spirit begins with a sarcastic or a jabbing comment. I want to remind you, though you know all things once and for all, or although you once fully knew it. His point is that they had already deviated from what they knew to be true. They had already set aside the truth and were walking on a dangerous and perilous pathway of wrong belief and unbelief that would lead them to apostasy. Triad 5. Jesus, Saving, and Destroyed First, Jesus is a transliteration of the Greek name Isus, which is a translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which is the literal Hebrew word for freedom or salvation. Digging a bit deeper, Yeshua is formed from the two Hebrew words Yahweh and Yasha, which literally means Yahweh opens or frees, hence the idea that Jesus saves and that he sets us free from bondage to self and to the law. Second, saving is rendered in the aorist active participle. Hence, it is just what he does. He continually is saving or setting free those who are in bondage. Third, he destroyed those who were not continually believing. Believing is rendered as a participle, something that's ongoing. And this destruction of those who were not continually believing is referenced three times in the New Testament. Therefore, their example is a perfect warning to those who believe, as three is code and is the number indicating perfection. This warning of destruction goes out to all who have proverbially been saved from Egypt, a metaphor for God freeing his people from the world and its ruler. This warning goes out to all those who have crossed the Red Sea, a metaphor for his people having been baptized into the faith. 
And this warning goes out to all those who are not actively believing that Yahweh is their I am, their absolute provision for every aspect of their lives all the time. Even though he destroyed those he had been saving, seems kind of odd, but that too was an act of saving consistent with his name, Yahweh Yasha. It was an act of mercy on behalf of those who were actively believing. After all, a little yeast of unbelief will eventually, over time, corrupt the whole batch of dough. Like a doctor surgically removing a cancer, Yahweh had to stop the infection of wrong belief and unbelief before the remnant of true believers was thoroughly corrupted, even if that remnant was comprised of only two people, Joshua and Caleb. Again, consistent with his name, he is always saving, even in destruction. He is saving those who are believing. As we go over this story, we must keep in mind that although there were those who were abject heretics, and we'll get to that in Jude 11 with the story of Korah, the scariest part of the story is in regard to the millions who professed faith but were not permitted to enter into the promised land. Yes, millions. Between two to six million Jews left the bonds of Egypt, symbolic of a believer's salvation experience. When they chose to leave Egypt, they left behind the world and its tyrannical leader, Pharaoh being symbolic of Satan, the ruler of this world. When they crossed through the Red Sea, they finalized their decision to follow God, resulting in their salvation from the terrors of the enemy. And they were, in effect, baptized into their faith. They followed the leading of the Spirit via a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, so they knew when to go, when to stop, when to rest, and when to fight. They were doing only what God wanted them to do and when he wanted them to do it. They ate of the manna which came down from heaven, and they drank water from the rock which was Christ. But when they were faced with the choice of living in the desert or entering the promised land and going to war against the enemies who dwelt within the land, they chose the desert. They chose death in the wilderness. As such, God swore in his wrath that they would never enter his rest. Rest could only be found in the promised land. To frame the reference, the conquest of the promised land is a metaphor. It's symbolic of Yahweh's conquest of our soul, which takes many years of all-out war waged against the enemies of wrong belief and unbelief, some of which are clearly out in the open and obvious, some of which are buried deep in the mountains and hills within the secret caves of our soul, hiding behind our pain and trauma. As the Israelites faced the prospect of entering the land and going to war for an indefinite time against an indefinite number of enemies, some of who were giants and many who were protected by high walls and steel gates, they were overcome with fear. I'm sure that after all their troubles in Egypt and in the desert, they must have hoped that God would have already cleared out the land so they could just waltz into this fabled land of milk and honey and enjoy the benefits thereof. After all, they suffered as slaves for so many years. Why could he not just make it easy for once? Come on, God. Perhaps they felt misled, tricked even. After all, they kept hearing about how amazing the land was. Not that they were going to the land of milk and honey and giants and fortresses and too many enemies to number. I'm sure all they could see in their minds was bloodshed and destruction, 
and they were terrified. They had enough of that in the past. Now, here's a moment of honesty. In my arrogance, I'm always taken back by the thought that with all they experienced of God through their great deliverance from Egypt and Pharaoh, it was not enough to cause them to trust him with the conquest of the land. Then God always humbles me and reminds me that these were severely damaged people. The wounds within their souls were too numerous to count. They had been subject for generations to daily oppression, violence, domination, and brutality. And it was Yahweh who sent them there. And it was Yahweh Adunai who set the time for their deliverance after 400 years. It's no wonder that they were overcome with fear and had serious trust issues when they heard about the giants and the mighty fortresses. Living under those conditions for generations would make any people group not just fearful, but terrified. And their relatively short trip from Egypt to the border of the Promised Land did not heal those deep-seated wounds resulting from that daily year-after-year trauma. The miracles God performed both within Egypt and on the way out were awesome and powerful. But these people did not choose to let the truth revealed to them about Yahweh begin to minister to their soul and to heal the wounds associated with the years of slavery. Maybe it all happened too fast to even process, and they were just going with the flow. Moreover, it did not matter that prophecy was being fulfilled. Yahweh was literally fulfilling his promise to Abraham to free his people and bring them to the land. It didn't matter that the Spirit was visibly present in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night guiding their every step. Nor did it matter that they were eating the food of angels and drinking the water from the rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. The wounds that they had incurred and the trust issues that were in their soul were just simply too deep. All of these wounds caused them to doubt that Yahweh would keep them safe. Accordingly, They refused to believe that the same God who delivered them from the tyrannical iron grip of Pharaoh would deliver them from the enemies in the land. They projected their past onto their future, and it is easy to judge them. But this is something, honestly, we all tend to do. We tend to live fearful that our past will be our future. We are much like the Israelites, always trying to protect ourselves from any further trauma or pain. But fear is the antonym of faith. Because of the wounds and the pain of our past, the fear that our past is indicative of our future, and the fact that God usually does not do things as we had hoped or when we had hoped, most people find it extremely difficult to live by faith, trusting that Yahweh is in control, that Yahweh is good, and that all he does is to mercifully ensure we live as aliens and strangers in this world, free from its death grip. Hence. All of us tend to struggle with a serious trust issue when it comes to God and our life. The first generation of Israelites who were freed from Egypt lived out their lives as apostates, holding to a form of religion but never willing to bet their lives on all that Yahweh said he was and all that he said he was going to do. Can you imagine? They even fantasized about returning to Egypt and the bondage of their old life. At least it was a terror and a prison they knew, understood, and had survived for centuries. 
whereas this life with God exposed them to unknown terrors that they did not know if they could handle or whether they could be successful. They would rather be safe in a hot, dry desert than take the risk of more trauma. This is a psychological phenomenon I have seen over and over. People would rather live in their bondage, the cage they know, than venture out having to risk and expose themselves to a pain and hurt over which they have little to no control. This is because they have learned how to survive their wounds, and they have even found a sick and twisted comfort in the pain because it is their pain, their hurt, and that is their cage. Moreover, I believe that at some deep primal level, everybody knows that God was responsible for their wounds and their pain. Or at the very least, they know that he could have stopped it and provided protection and shelter. As such, people tend to naturally have a trust issue with God. And despite his miracles and wonders, without understanding that he destroys to set free, there is no way a person on their own can frame what he has done and why he has done it. As a result, they live bound by fear and not faith. And they do all they can in a futile attempt to control the outcomes of their lives. This is how the Israelites who died in the desert lived. He will not let us enter. In bringing up this example of the Israelites, the spirit is clear that if, because of fear, we desire to stay in the desert and play religion with God, Yahweh will let us. If we really do not want to go to war against the embedded enemies in our soul, he will respect our decision, confirm our decision even, and swear in his wrath that we will not enter the promised land. He will allow us, by our choice, to wander in the wilderness of Christianity where we will ultimately die in the desert, never having experienced the promised blessings of peace, rest, and an abundant life that is a fruit of being victorious in war. We will die worshiping a form of God, but never knowing God. Therefore, he tells us, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Why would the Spirit give us this warning? If everyone who has said the sinner's prayer has their golden ticket to heaven tucked away in their back pocket. In the desert, the wilderness of religion, Yahweh still provides for his people, leads them and does his God stuff over their lives, as he promised to never leave them nor forsake them. But they will not get to know him. They will always distrust him. They will not experience intimacy with Yahweh and their experience with him will never match all the promises they have read and been told about. They will simply be left wanting more until they die without the promise. Sure, they'll be busy doing all manner of religious tasks and duties in his name, lawless though those tasks may be, and that will make them feel good, at least in temporary spurts. And God may even use them in the lives of others, but they will be missing out and their experience will always be wanting. They will always be searching for something else, the next thing to keep up the feeling that they are good with God. When it's all said and done, they will live in disappointment. That is the fruit of apostasy. The necessity of war. 
But consider this. We were made to be free, unrestrained, to live without fear, and to indulge decadently in the land flowing with milk and honey. We were made to live in rest, confident that we are called, beloved, and kept. Rest assured, this is not a fantasy, and we have not been misled or tricked, but the life promised to us by Yahweh is only found when, by faith, we enter the promised land and go to war against all the enemies of wrong belief and unbelief that currently occupy our soul. War is necessary if we are to topple the giants, tear down the fortresses, and decimate the enemies that want us dead and which refuse to submit to Yahweh as our I am. The land cannot know peace unless there is first war. Life is found through death, and war is the pathway. The scary thing is that we must let the Spirit lead us down into the deepest, darkest crevices in our soul, where due to fear, pain, and all our trauma, we still play God. We still play the I am over our own lives. We must confront each and every one of these places in our soul where fear is ruling as our Lord and pain has erected barriers of self-protection. If we do, if we are willing to let Yahweh have his war, the Spirit will show us why we can trust Yahweh, believing that he is a much better ruler over our lives than we are, and he will show us how to let Yahweh be our ruler. He will teach us that he alone is good, hence all he does is just and good, as he leads us to understand that all he caused in our lives, every hurt, wound, and trauma, was good, pleasing, and perfect. There could have been no other way. Then this fight, this conquest for our soul, becomes less and less scary. It begins to be something we look forward to and want. But make no mistake, this is a war against wrong belief and unbelief, which is the sin which Jesus wants to conquer. Most people tend to wage war against their sinful behavior, which is an endless act of inane futility. Our behavior is just the fruit of what we think, which is the fruit of what we believe. In other words, our sinful behavior is just the indicator of a problem, but it is not the problem. Therefore, trying to control it is senseless. For instance, the Israelites' refusal to enter the promised land was not their problem. It was an indicator of their problem. They had a terrible understanding of Yahweh, and they did not trust him. They did not believe he was good, and they did not believe he would lovingly care and protect them all the way to victory. Their sin was their unbelief. He knocks the divine conquest. This war this divine conquest of our soul, is the picture behind the passage where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. In context of the letter to Laodicea, this is not a passage to be used for evangelism, as so many have done. Rather, it addresses sick believers who think they are good with God and who are fully convinced they are spiritually healthy but whom God sees as wretched and miserable and poor and naked. Think of our soul as a long hallway with many doors, most of which are shut and locked down tight, not wanting anyone to come in and disturb them. 
At one time, the doors were open and easily accessible by others. But once we started to be hurt, wounded, betrayed, we started to shut those doors and lock them up to protect and care for ourselves. But the truth is, we are lousy caretakers who live in delusion. We are wretched and miserable and poor and naked. Still, Jesus walks the hallway of our soul and he knocks on each door. If we open the door when he knocks, he will come in and clean out that room of all its filth, pain, terror, fear, wrong belief, and unbelief. He will make it a proper room purposed for fellowship, intimacy, love, and occupation by his spirit. Sure, in each room a battle ensues, some quite fierce, and at times it feels like we're going to die. After all, our God is a consuming fire. But rest assured, Yahweh Kana, Yahweh who is jealous, he is so jealous for us that Yahweh Makoreshkim, Yahweh who sets us apart for himself, he literally will do everything it takes to be the sole authority which occupies that room. It is how he proves that he loves us. And when we come to understand why we can now be believing in him and how to now be believing in him in that specific room of our life, we find that he will help us give up the fight. Once permitted, once we are willing, he will make his abode in that room with the result that another part of our being is transformed into his image and becomes a habitation of his peace and rest. Then he moves on and begins knocking on another door. He never busts down the door. He just knocks and patiently waits for us to be willing to open the door to him. Jesus wants us to be those who now and continually overcome the lie of self-dependence and personal goodness propagated by the religious delusion that we are spiritually rich, wealthy, and are good with God because of all we do for God, for others, and for ourselves. We must now and continually overcome. When we get to the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, we'll find that Jesus' plea is for them to now be overcoming or to now be believing. It's something that it happens now. So as a precursor to that study, let's look at what it means to now and continually overcome or to now be overcoming. First, we must accept that Yahweh chose us to be called into his household even before we were born. Second, we must believe that he is Yahweh Adonai, who is sovereign over all things all the time, which means he is the one who's responsible for each and every wound that we ever incurred. He is the cause of destruction and the reason why our doors are shut and locked. Third, we must believe that each and every wound was an expression of his great agape love for us. As he knew that it was our pain, just the right amount of pain, that would cause us to reject the world and come to him to receive his love. Fourth, we must believe that all the terrible things we have done or thought, which all stem from those wounds and our flesh, they were all a part of his great plan, part of the steps that were needed for Yahweh Ra, our great shepherd, to lead us to freedom. Accordingly, we do not need to carry the weight of it or be bound by failure, guilt, and shame. After all, he died for all of it. He does not deal with us on the basis of sin. In fact, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Fifth, 
the number of grace. <laughs> we must believe that Yahweh Ra, again, our great shepherd, and Yahweh Nisi, our banner and our rallying place in time of war, will lead us in victory, while Yahweh Rapha, our healer, will heal us of our wounds, such that we can now be believing and now and continually live as an overcomer. Sixth, which is the number of man, we must know and be fully convinced that he is the one who transforms us into his image. Our attempts, man's attempts to try to be good enough to be like him, are a waste of time. We must remember that the source matters. The source is everything. As we present ourselves to him as a willing sacrifice, he will transform us in his time, room by room. All our attempts to be like Jesus are merely our feeble and pathetic attempts to be the I am. Now, the Spirit of God will help us to now and continually overcome if we are willing to let him help us. And if we are willing, he will transform us such that these truths become our truths. And if we are willing, he will even help us be willing. Folding these concepts into the fifth triad, the number of grace, Jesus saving and destroyed, Jesus will save and destroy one way or the other. If we let him destroy all our wrong belief and unbelief, including the delusion that we can be good for God, we will, by his grace, be released from all our attachments to this world. And we will be saved from our flesh, from the darkness that dwells in our soul, from the arrogance of the me, and from all our fear. This is the pathway of death in the same way that it is the only pathway to life, the only pathway to knowing his peace and rest. If, however, we hold on to the delusion of our own goodness, he will destroy us in the wilderness of religion, despite his having previously pulled us out of this world and into his household. And this is a scary place to be, for those in his household who abide in unbelief will be cast out of his house to that place of outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. As Jude said, these stories are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Therefore, this fifth triad serves as a warning to all of us who have been saved from the world. God is asking us to now and continually believe that he is who he says he is, our I am, our sufficiency for all things all the time. And we are who he says we are, his beloved. He is warning us to not be like the Israelites whom he swore in his wrath that they would never enter his rest. He is warning us to be willing to let him have his war and let him lead us to victory. This is the only pathway out of apostasy. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in.